Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the first federal budget in two years will be delivered on April 19th. That announcement comes as the House debates a motion calling for a federal plan to reopen the economy and the conditions needed for ending lockdowns and restrictions. MPs will debate the right approach. As concern mounts over a COVID-19 third wave and rising infection rates among people under the age of 40 who won't be eligible for vaccines for weeks, we'll hear from an expert on that. And Canada is witnessing a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. I'll speak with the author of a new report on what's behind the surge and what needs to be done to curb it. And we will begin tonight with news that the Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, will deliver the first federal budget in two years on Monday, April 19th at 4 p.m. That budget will provide an update on the deficit running at around $400 billion these days and lay out the Liberal government's spending plan of up to another $100 billion over the next three years for continued COVID relief measures, green initiatives to rebuild the economy, and spending on childcare and health care. It could also serve as the catalyst for a snap election this spring in a minority parliament. Today, the House was focused on calls for a clear federal plan on how Canada will reopen. A plan for ending the pandemic restrictions, the lockdowns, and what measures will be used to decide when Canada has turned the corner. How the border will safely reopen. Plans for more rapid testing and how long testing will be required. Those kinds of questions are being asked by Canadians as vaccinations ramp up. But infections are creeping up as well, and the country is entering year two of the pandemic. And the questions were also being raised today in the House of Commons. Tens of thousands of Canadian small businesses are hanging on by a thread. Lockdowns are hurting main streets across the country and family-owned businesses are in crisis. This has had an impact on the country's physical and mental health. The Prime Minister needs to commit to a data-driven, safe plan for reopening to give millions of Canadians hope. Where is the plan and when is it coming? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, every step of the way we have been there to support Canadians and every step of the way we will continue to put both the protection and safety of Canadians and uh, the uh, benefits of our economy at the front line. That's why we are deeply informed by experts and uh, scientists in how we move forward. We will continue to ground our decisions based in science and evidence, unlike the Conservative Party that continues to doubt the use of masks from time to time. Uh, we will continue to stand up for Canadians. Members of Parliament today were debating a Conservative motion calling on the government to present a plan to Parliament, a data-driven plan to gradually and permanently lift COVID-19 restrictions to do that safely as well. Let's bring in three members of Parliament to discuss that. Jennifer O'Connell is an Ontario Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Health. John Barlow is an Alberta Conservative MP, a member of the Standing Committee on Health. And Laurel Collins is a British Columbia New Democrat MP and her party's environment critic. Good to see you all. Thanks for being with me tonight. Mr. Barlow, let me start with you since the House is debating your party's motion today, calling on the government to present within 20 days a clear data-driven plan to support safely, gradually and permanently lifting COVID-19 restrictions. Look, we now have the date for the federal budget, April 19th. Would you expect some of those questions to be answered in that spending plan and can you wait for that? 
Well, I certainly hope so, Peter. Um, but remember, this has been 760 days since the last, uh, when this, this budget is tabled. It'll be more than six, 760 days since the last budget. And every other major jurisdiction in the world, every other G7 country has started to roll out strategies and clear pathway to reopening their economy, getting businesses back open, and certainly uh, having some sort of life getting back to normalcy. And yet our government, the, the Canadian uh, Liberal government, has failed to do any of those things, have not announced any metrics, any uh, decisions on you know even the simplest things. If you've been vaccinated, um, does that relieve you from quarantines, from having to wear masks? Am I, am I going right. to be able to go and see my 93-year-old grandfather. Okay, Those so are let's, things we're going to dig into some of that. But so simply put, no, you want you want some kind of a plan even before the government unveils a budget. You bet. Okay, um, Jennifer O'Connell, so April 19th for the first federal budget in two years. What should we expect from that budget? And will it include any kind of guidance for how the economy and the country should reopen? Well, I think, first of all, every step of the way, our government has been there for Canadians to support them throughout this pandemic. So I think what you can expect from this budget is more supports for Canadians, more supports for Canadian businesses, and ensuring that we are going to not only get through this health crisis, but prepare for the economy to get back on track. Prior to COVID, our economy was booming, and it is is precisely these types of measures that have allowed us to absorb um, what has happened through the pandemic. But frankly, the Conservative motion today is reckless and dangerous to Canadians' health, and we're going to continue to side with scientists and evidence and then being there for Canadians to All keep right, them we'll, safe. We'll come back to some of that uh, as we continue our conversation. Uh, Laurel Collins, let me turn to you. Uh, what does the NDP think of this Conservative motion today, and, and does the upcoming budget need to include some sort of guidance on how the economy will reopen along with a detailed spending plan from the Liberals? You know, of course, we have to listen to the best available evidence, the best available science whenever we're talking about reopening. And I think Canadians do want to see a plan. But they want to see a plan that's really going to take care of Canadians who are struggling right now. The NDP has put forward a really sensible amendment to the motion to actually ensure that all workers would have access to 10 days of paid sick leave. And we've heard it today in Parliament, both from the Conservatives and from the Liberals, a uh, lack of openness, really, to that. Uh, Mr. Barlow, let me come back, you, uh, back to you. Uh, is it up to politicians to draw up a reopening plan or should that be left to the medical experts on a on a real time basis, depending on how the pandemic is evolving? No, I think uh, governments absolutely play a role. They are the leaders. We should be showing that leadership. Um, Canadians are being frustrated and we've seen uh, the mental health uh, impact that this has had on Canadians. This stop and start, stop and start. Uh, they want a clear strategy for when uh, life can go back to normal. Uh, and that is what uh, that is what we're asking the Liberal government to show is to show a, st a strategy. And when my colleague says, you know, they're they're going to be making their decisions on on science and data, well, we've already seen that that's not the case. When you have NASI saying one thing about AstraZeneca, PHAC saying another, we've asked for uh, any real data that justifies the hotel quarantines. They can't answer that. Uh, if you had the data to back that up, then you would be willing to share that with Canadians. And I think. That is really where this has become so frustrating is that lack of transparency, that lack of openness on how these decisions are being made. And 
for her, for, for Miss O'Connell to say this is frightening for Canadians to ask for life to go back to normal, I don't think it's frightening at all for Canadians wanted to go back to work, okay, get their businesses me, back open, and see their loved ones. That's me, not frightening. Me, That's what Canadians want. Let me turn to Jennifer O'Connell. I understand the point about leaving you know, some of these key decisions to, uh, to science, and in fact, many of these decisions about restrictions and reopenings and those measures are made actually at the provincial level or the local health unit level in uh, you know, uh, provinces and cities across the country. But... Um, when will Canadians and get answers to questions such as, what will I be allowed to do when I have two vaccines? The U.S. already has provided that guidance. Uh, will I have paid sick leave when I return to work? What about vaccine passports? Will we have those? And what will that mean for lockdowns or restrictions? Under what conditions will the border reopen? Uh, interprovincial travel. A lot of those are decisions that are in the purview of the federal government. Certainly guidance is. Who will give Canadians those answers and when? Thank you. Well, and I just want to go back to what was said. I didn't okay, don't go back too far because I want to hear you on this. I won't. But what I'm saying is that the conservatives are being reckless. And to answer your question, um, that guidance is being driven by science and the science is evolving. So we have learned so much through this pandemic. And I think that the um, as we collect the real world data, that's when Canadians are going to start getting those answers as well. And this is what every jurisdiction around the world is doing. This is why it's so important to um, leave these sorts of decisions not to politicians, but to scientists. And frankly, I take no lessons from the conservatives who just this past weekend were debating if climate change is real. So I don't really trust them and I don't think Canadians trust them when it comes to data, science and evidence. But we are going to have a lot of those answers as the data becomes available as it evolves. But most importantly, there are no broad strokes um, uh, examples in the sense that as restrictions need to be lifted, it's going to be done regionally based. You mentioned provinces and territories, and that's crucial okay. because there is not a one-size-fits-all solution, and those regional dynamics okay, me, are incredibly important, okay, let, and the Conservatives let, let, just want us to ignore Laurel, that. Laurel Collins, what role should the federal government play, if any, in deciding how the economy will reopen and how restrictions will end? Is that entirely the purview of the provinces and, and local health officials, or... Does the government have a role to play in, for instance, bringing those different groups together to create some sort of plan uh, where there's agreed upon benchmarks, timelines that could allow reopenings or might, in fact, lead to further restrictions? We do want to see leadership from our federal government. And this Liberal government keeps talking about a Team Canada approach. But when you don't have a team leader, it's very difficult. And the NDP actually put forward a plan uh, to have an all-hands-on-deck approach to make sure that the military is available if needed for provinces to support them in the vaccine rollout, making sure that uh, retired nurses, uh, students are available for provinces who might need a little bit of extra help. We look just to our neighbors to the south and we see the Biden administration actually doing a lot of these things already. But I do want to just pick up on one thing uh, that my liberal colleague mentioned, which is around uh, the criticism of the conservatives for uh, voting down a motion declaring yeah. climate change is real. And, you know, that the idea that this is even a question, that there is a climate emergency or not, is just out of touch. Yeah. Multiple times. Mr. Barlow, I'll come back to you. But let, let it Laurel is Collins very, finish. 
very out of touch with reality. But I do think it's a bit laughable that the liberals seem to have picked up on this and are criticizing the conservatives when we've seen time and time again, yes, they'll admit the climate crisis is real, but they won't actually do anything. uh, They they actually bought a pipeline. They continue to increase subsidies to fossil fuels, and they have missed every single climate target that right, they Mr. set. Mr. Barlow, and that the climate change debate is a conversation is going to make its way into a lot of political discussions these days. And the budget will have a lot to say about climate change and green spending. And Mr. O'Toole insisted today the debate on climate change. He said it again. It's settled and that he will present a climate plan before the next election. And yet we have the party membership voting out a motion which proclaimed climate change is real. So what are voters supposed to think about your party's commitment to dealing with climate change? Well, it's you know typical of the Liberals to, to cherry pick these things. They didn't read the entire uh, motion that was up for debate and wasn't just about climate change was real. There was some uh, wording in there that might have been uh, detrimental to, to some important industries in our country like agriculture and energy. Climate change appears in our policy document multiple times. In our 2019 campaign, we had the most robust environment climate change uh, policy document ever put forward by a Canadian political party, a realplan.ca. Go and check it out. Uh, So to say that this is a climate change denier is pure politics, but I expect nothing less. All right. Uh, So, uh, Jennifer O'Connell, let me give a quick final word to you. So we, we should not expect, Liberals don't support this motion then, Uh, from the Conservatives on coming forward with a detailed plan in 20 days. Not going to happen. Well, we support working with provinces and territories, making sure that we don't put forward a one-size-fits-all solution, that we need to respect uh, the Constitution, the jurisdictional issues, but we need to be there to provide provinces and territories and the regional health authorities with um, what is needed to make the best decisions based on science and evidence. And the Conservatives can talk all day long about saying they don't deny climate change, but their party says one thing and their leader says another, and Canadians, you know, it's this this type of rhetoric that yeah. we've all had a chance everybody's had a chance to make the point we're going to move forward working with provinces and territories gotta on leave the it. health have, crisis have to leave it at that thank you all for your time tonight uh, as we head towards the budget we're going to have a lot of time to talk about all these things again but thank you for your time tonight appreciate it thanks Peter. take thank care you. everybody bye now thanks peter Federal public health doctors warning about the need for provinces and municipalities to be very careful in lifting restrictions these days. That's because of the growing spread of COVID-19 variants of concern, which are more easily transmitted and can lead to more serious infections. And that's what's happening right now, with the highest rate of new infections hitting Canadians between the ages of 20 and 39, who could then spread the infection to more vulnerable groups. Right now, the highest rates, the highest incidence is in the younger age groups. As soon as you get more numbers of people, you're going to see more cases of uh, severe outcomes. There's been a, a much stronger evidence coming out of the United Kingdom and elsewhere to say that these, this B117 variant does result in more severe illness. These numbers increase in the younger population. I think we're going to see increases in hospitalizations and ICU visits. Rewa Dionenden is an epidemiologist and an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. He joins me now. Thank you for giving us some more of your time again tonight. Appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Look, we seem to have this uh, perhaps a worrisome intersection here of younger people aged 20 to 39 with the highest infection rates these days. They're down the list for vaccines. Uh, we have the rise in the variants and concerns about indoor gatherings of any size and perhaps restrictions being lifted. Uh, are we in a dangerous period right now? We're in a very dangerous period. Uh, the new variants, people need to understand, are showing hypertransmissibility and larger infection rates amongst the younger population. We're seeing an increase in hospitalization, more serious cases amongst young people, probably due to the new biological nature of some of these variants. So young people are newly vulnerable. In addition, they're more likely to socialize right now and, as you noted, are lower down the vaccination list. So they are a concerning demographic. And one thing about them that concerns me more so is we're not sure how to support them and discourage them. Because mm. it's one thing to say, hey, young people, you're being bad in a patronizing, scolding tone. But some of them live in crowded housing. Some of them are frontline workers, grocery store clerks, baristas, that kind of thing. And they can't protect themselves. So what can we do from a policy standpoint to enable them to isolate and to be less uh, exposed? That's unclear. Yeah, and and I guess the, one of the other issues, right, is because as you touched on, they tend to be more uh, more socially mobile and so on, which which leads to the possibility of of putting at risk those who are more vulnerable, family members, elderly members, and so on. So some, something else to watch for. Look, we, we are. Uh, you touched on it. We're still seeing an increase in the uh, in the increase. Uh, sorry, increase in the variants of concern, which are more transmissible. We're getting into the nice spring weather. Pandemic fatigue is, I think, heavy in a lot of parts of the country now. How satisfied are you with the public health measures in place at this critical time? I'm not satisfied at all. I think much of the country is opening up when they should be either staying put or closing some things down. We're seeing exponential growth in places like Ontario, and it's only going to accelerate because, as noted, the new variants are hyper-transmissible. We have schools that are open, for example, and not good enough surveillance in those schools to give us a good idea of where the transmission is happening. So if we're going to keep these things open, we should be investing in the public health assets to allow us to control the spread. Things like asymptomatic surveillance, things like better testing and tracing, mm. isolation. And we're not doing that. So given that reality... I think we should really put a break on the rate at which we are opening up society. All right. Another area of concern, the vaccine uptake among seniors. In Ontario, for instance, just over 70% of people over 80 have been vaccinated uh, or signed up for a shot. That leaves some 200,000 people in the province over 80 who haven't signed up yet. And they're the most vulnerable. Now, we know that today the Ontario government's announcing a $3.7 million funding program to transport seniors to the vaccination site. So that uh, could make a difference. But how big of a problem is this. It's a pretty big problem. And part of the issue is, do seniors have access to the sign-up process? A lot of seniors aren't internet savvy, for example. Do they have loved ones who are helping them sign up? Many don't. And as noted, some haven't got transportation wherewithal to get to the, the place or even to understand the process of signing up and what it entails. So there are a lot of a lot of barriers still to be brought down, and I'm glad that we're addressing them one by one, but it has to happen faster. Part of this, of course, is vaccine hesitancy. And we talk around that a lot, but don't target it to the appropriate demographic in terms they can understand and things they care about. Mm. So we have a fair amount of work to do here still. Vaccine hesitancy, and I'm, I, I guess I wonder how concerned you are about uh, vaccine mixed messaging. We have the science advisor to the federal government, the top scientists in the country saying now that we shouldn't be extending the time between doses for seniors to four months saying, uh, you know, the research so far doesn't support that uh, kind of a delay for seniors. Uh, I mean, how helpful is it 
to, to have the country's top scientists contradicting the public uh, health officials at Health Canada saying, yeah, we can extend this dose period. This is the nature of science. Robust debate is important and disagreement is important too. What the public needs to understand is we're actually not disagreeing heavily. What we're debating here and arguing about are the details of the plan. The one-size-fits-all approach probably isn't appropriate here. So I think most people get behind the idea of maximizing the number of people we can get one dose into with some exceptions based upon the science. So in this case, is maybe in, uh, elderly people need to have their doses on schedule to make sure we don't have this immunosenescent effect, as we call it, or maybe some immunocompromised people have the same uh, approach. So what we're seeing here in real time is working through the details as scientists do. Unfortunately, everything's under the public eye now, under deep scrutiny, and that leads to some right. confusion and mistrust by the population. It's unfortunate. And if we had had you know, years of planning, we probably could have put together a more robust public communications plan and not put everything under the public eye. But this is where we are. Let's finish. And unfortunately... Oh, sorry, finish are, up. Oh, as, as someone said, we are building the plane as we're flying it, unfortunately. Fair enough. Uh, let's finish on this in the minute or so we have left. The AstraZeneca vaccine facing more scrutiny again today with U.S. health officials questioning its efficacy. Claims of 79% saying those results from the U.S. trials you know, may have included outdated information. Still not approved in the U.S., but it's being used in Canada. Um, what are your thoughts... Uh, on on that and the, the ongoing debate about AstraZeneca is is how significant is it? AstraZeneca is its own worst enemy. It just can't seem to do anything right in terms of public relations. In this case, it's an unforced error. They just should have included the more recent data, and they will soon. It's unclear why they didn't do that. So it's probably a fine vaccine. I will happily take this vaccine based upon what I've seen. The problem is now the public perceives a lack of transparency, and lack of transparency is seen as corruption, and it's seen as a, another reason for distrusting the vaccine. It's not helping, unfortunately. So we have to really gather our forces and re-communicate what the data actually mean to the public. All right. Uh, Rewat Dionandan, always great to talk to you. Thanks again for your time tonight. Take care. Thank you. Well, a new report released today documents a disturbing rise in racist attacks against Asian Canadians during the pandemic. And Chinese Canadian organizations want immediate action from all levels of government. The Chinese Canadian Council reports 1,150 cases of racist attacks from across Canada in the past year. Nearly half of those, 507 cases, were reported in the first two months of this year alone. 44% of the incidents were reported from British Columbia. 40% were reported from Ontario. 11% of the incidents contained a violent physical assault or unwanted physical contact. 10% of the incidents included being coughed at or spit on. Most occurred in public spaces, but 17% of the incidents or attacks occurred in grocery stores or restaurants. And the number of anti-Asian racist incidents is higher per capita in Canada than it is in the United States. Justin Kong is the executive director of the Chinese-Canadian National Council, Toronto Chapter. He's with me now. Mr. Kong, thanks for your uh, time this evening. Good to have you with us. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start with some of these uh, these very disturbing numbers. And why is Canada seeing a rise in anti-Asian racism and attacks in the past year? What's leading to this? Yeah, I think one of the big reasons is you know it seems like there's a certain uh, a, a significant portion of people who think that you know uh, Asian people or Chinese people are responsible for the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, that is not the case, and that is not true, right? Uh, however, this you know this this belief 
uh, that, you know, Asians or, you know, Chinese people are responsible for this pandemic has created a condition uh, where people feel like it's okay to attack Asians and to be racist towards uh, Asian communities, right? So we must say no to that and we must like absolutely refuse to accept uh, those type of conditions. I want to come to some of the recommendations that you're calling uh, uh, on action from governments in a moment, but t- tell me more about the incidents that have been reported to your organization. How violent have some of these attacks been? Yeah, so really, I think it ranges, right? Like we're seeing a lot of, of course, in the reporting, a lot of it is like, um, you know, verbal attacks or, you know, verbal insulting or like shouting at, you know, Asian people. Um, but it really, it also spans towards physical attacks, right? Um, we saw a number of violent physical attacks um, in Vancouver, and certainly it's the case here in Toronto and, and Montreal as well, right? Certainly it's, it's um, it happens across Canada, right? Um, physical attacks. Uh, pushing, spitting, all these things are things that we've seen. Uh, oftentimes, they're targeting people who are vulnerable, uh, seniors, young people, people who may not speak English. Um, and so it's really disturbing. So to be clear, and going through some of your reports here, uh, I mean, I read one one story of a an individual uh, just standing at the end of their laneway when two young people came by and, and jumped them and, and yelled at them to take their mask off and go back to China. Um, yeah. it, 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 tell me what the, the people who have been subjected to these attacks, what do they tell you about the kind of effect it has had on them? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, whenever we're, we've, we're faced with racism or when we're, whenever we're a victim of racism, um, whenever we, we encounter racist attacks, right, it, it leaves a mark on us, right? It impacts us. It changes the way in which we interact uh, with the world. And so we really have to, uh, Asian communities are standing out and they're saying, we're not accepting this. We're not going to accept this, right? And if you do this to us, we're going to fight back, right? Um, and they have been fighting back. We have been fighting back. We've been organizing. And now we're demanding action from our government, right? Um, recognizing that, you know, there is a, we, we, we have an obligation to, to make sure that, you know, um, our, our communities are safe for, for Asian people, for other racialized people, for everyone, right? Let's, um, let's talk about some of the things you want. You've called for uh, urgent action from all levels of government. Specifically, what do you want to see? Yeah, we want to see, obviously, recognition that this is an issue, right? Uh, we still haven't seen that recognition, in obviously, in many uh, in provinces. In uh, Federally, we saw a motion yesterday from the NDP, which is a good start. Right. Um, so it was great to see that. However, we do need more concrete policies as well, right? How do we support survivors, right? How do we support people who have faced racist encounters and provide them with, you know, the counseling, the support, the community-based support that is culturally specific, um, language, linguistically accessible, right? How do we support, you know, workers and businesses who have also been impacted by this racism, right? Um, we know that, you know, many Asian communities also work in the food industry, right? Uh, we know it's this, the food industry has been hit hard, not only by the pandemic, and the lockdowns, but also by the stigmatization. People are saying, I'm not going to go to these Chinese restaurants anymore because, you know, they started the virus. Well, that's not the case, right? And we need to support our communities. We need to support the workers who have lost their jobs. We need to support small business owners who are facing down this racism as well, right? And obviously, we also... I'm sorry, go ahead. Just finish the point. Yeah. Uh, we also need to support um, Asian, Asian workers who are on the front line as essential workers, right? Um, essential workers are working very hard. We need to protect them, make sure they have paid sick days, make sure migrant workers have status. We need a comprehensive approach to addressing anti-Asian racism, and that includes many things. Can you tell me where you are, um, uh, where you are in those uh, uh, 
those deliberations, those conversations with governments about uh, taking action on some of these. I mean, the report's out today, the recommendations are there, but uh, I'm assuming you've had ongoing conversations with governments at different levels about needing to deal with this issue. Uh, what's the response been so far? You know, I think it's good. It's good. I think, you know, for example, yesterday with the NDP, I think that's a good start in terms of at the federal level, right? So we'll continue to be in conversation and obviously with the uh, Liberal government as well, who has also uh, implemented certain, um, for example, the funding that we got was through the uh, Canadian federal government, right? So that is a helpful uh, way to start addressing some of these issues, but we need to really do it in a way which is more systematic, and we do need to have more extensive conversations about how we can address this. And we'll certainly be reaching out to uh, the federal government, uh, the provincial governments um, across across Canada to discuss these issues and to explore more on how we can work together to address uh, anti-Asian racism that is, you know, intensifying. All right, Justin Kong, uh, appreciate your uh, time tonight and. Uh uh, the discussion about this very important issue that uh, Canada looks to deal with. Uh, thanks again, and we'll talk again. All right, thanks a lot. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks again for watching. Until next time.